Sport has the power to change the world. Welcome to Telling Our Football Stories. My name is Bozi Kumalo and my guest today is Coach David Notwane, who is a South African under-23 national team coach. In today's episode, Coach David talks about his playing days, about date, and coaching education. Coach Dave, how you doing? Hi, Boise. I'm good, my man. Uh, how you doing? I'm good, thanks. How did, how did you get into soccer? Yeah, soccer, you know, it, it's a thing for us uh, in South Africa, you know, growing up as a kid, you know, uh, that's the only thing that was at our disposal or available to us, you know, as a form of uh, activity or sport at a young age. So, uh, uh, yeah, basically that's where it all started, you know, in the streets of uh, Atrishville in uh, uh, the old Pretoria, now Twani. And uh, from then on, you know, growing through the youth ranks, one ended up into mainstream football, into the professional setup. Nice. What professional team did you play for? Yeah, look, I got my, my break uh, at the, uh, the then Lightbody Santos way back in 1992. Okay. And uh, I then moved to uh, Supersport United. Uh, here in Swane, uh, with, of course, Santos being based in Cape Town, you know, initially joined them while I was at Varsity. So then uh, as my career was blossoming, you know, Supersport tapped on me. And then uh, in the year 1998, I moved over back home in Swane and spent uh, two seasons with Supersport before moving back to Cape Town with Santos to finish my career. What position did you play? Well, I played many positions. Uh, initially, as a midfielder growing up, uh, but also, you know, I played striker in my uh, development years. So when I joined Santos, I joined Santos uh, as a striker, uh, you know, with their super team with Duncan Crowey, them, the legendary Duncan Crowey, uh, who was then the, their lead striker. So. <laughs> And they are most experienced and exciting prospects. So I wasn't going to, you know, have a chance to play in a team where Duncan Crow was a striker. So uh, I was then dropped into the midfield. Uh, perhaps, you know, the coach saw then that uh, I had very good endurance capacity. Then I was moved into a midfield, played as an offensive midfield, I played as a defensive midfield. Then I also played as a winger. So... Yeah, I was more of an offensive player, and eventually I I, I really hit hit it in the top league as a striker. Now, looking back when you played and looking at modern soccer now, is there a, a difference? Yeah, I would say so. You know, um, obviously, we played in an era where uh, coaching was not scientific. You know. Oh, it was differently scientific, maybe to put it in that sense. You know, things were not so well documented. Uh, research was very minimal, you know, especially if you look at the South African context. Uh, one played uh, uh, pretty much during, you know, uh, the era of apartheid and post-apartheid. So science to us was something a little bit foreign, you know. 
Yes. And uh, of course, with that, then uh, uh, the game was differently physical. It was physical from strength and power. But if you look at the game today, uh, the physical aspect of the game is now more on speed. You know, so there's a lot of speed in the game now. The balls are faster, the boots are lighter. Yeah. You know, shin guards are also lighter. So we played in an era where the ball was was a real uh, 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 cow skin, you know what I mean? Yes. So the ball was a bit heavier, uh, you know, players in terms of uh, physical outlook were more geared towards weights, more strength, more power. So I think that's one of the major dif uh, differences you see. And I think the game has also become a little bit tactically complicated, to put it simply. Yeah. Now, you, you talked a little bit about you played in the apartheid era. What was it like to play in those days with, with uh, that stuff going on? Yeah, look, uh, you know, being a, a player of uh, African origin and then co considered black, you know, based on racial uh, discrimination, uh, it was really, really tough because in the townships, um, you know, there was a lot of football, but limited opportunities, you know, less organization in terms of uh, how football was structured in our leagues. And uh, during the times of, uh, you know, the township upheaval and riots, uh, then football was affected, you know. So uh, then, you know, we had to go into the towns to seek better opportunities, play for some of the white teams. But the funny thing is you would be accepted, you know, uh, as a player, and that's the power of football. Mm. You know, you'd be accepted as a player. I mean, you know, we you develop mates of a different race group, but then in terms of the general social setting, you would still be considered not, you know, required to be in certain parts of the town, especially, you know, growing up in Pretoria, the old Pretoria. Yes. But yeah, it, it was okay. It was okay. Nice. That's good to hear. Now, how did you get into coaching? Yeah, coaching is a journey that uh, I actually started while I was playing because uh, I used to work for an NGO called uh, SCORE, which uh, stands for uh, Sports Coaches Outreach. So this was a, a voluntary organization that brought in volunteers from the US, you know, from Europe, to come and do uh, uh, English teaching and sports, you know, training in the townships of Cape Town. So through football, I managed to hook up with the mates that were in that project. Now, then I started to join up with them during the day when they go to the schools during uh, physical education lessons, they would offer sports, you know, yes. football, volleyball, basketball, uh, hand handball. So, you know, and I, I think I learned a lot of uh, 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 the tricks around coaching from that period in my life. And that was before I became full-time professional. So I think then uh, during my career, I was very, very keen on the scientific approach to coaching. And uh, I think uh, uh, guys like, you know, Mushin Etugra, uh, Bobby Solomons, you know, Farouk Khan, played a major role in encouraging me to consider coaching when I ended my career. And I'm happy that, you know, I could listen and take in that they saw something in me as a potential coach, you know, and uh, 
I, I then started doing my licenses in coaching before I ended my career. So then the rest is history. No, that's interesting to hear. Now, the coaching courses, where, where, where did you take the coaching courses and how did you know about the coaching courses? Um, yeah, very interesting. You know, I, I actually did uh, my first coaching, uh, youth coaching license way back in 1995 under Coach Shakes Mashaba. And uh, it was, you know, uh, I was playing at the time and uh, looking for opportunities, you know, uh, just broken as a, as a professional. So it was more a course based for community based coaching, you know. Yes. Now, uh, in terms of how do we get uh, uh, the licenses would come through, you know, the federation where there'll be advertising of various licenses and uh, uh, with having a keen interest on coaching, one was always keeping his ear on the ground for any, you know, courses that were coming up so one could join up. And uh, I was blessed enough to be able to uh, have an opportunity to go to the Netherlands through the SCORE project. And I managed to do uh, uh, the KNVB uh, international course in, in 2005, which was a month long stay in Holland, you know, and uh, that really exposed me to, you know, coaching at a, a very organized setup with a different approach. And uh, I was then, you know, finding my feet in coaching and trying to figure out whether it's this thing for me or not. Yeah. So that was a fantastic opportunity to have. And then in between, we always had this, uh, you know, workshops from, you know, foreign a, a partners of SAFA that came down into Cape Town. You know, the English FA ran a course. Uh, uh, Charlton came, they also did a, a course. You know, the World Football Academy with the KNVB came and also did a few courses. So you always want to keep, you know, improving yourself and picking up and tapping people's brains in terms of uh, 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 the global space of football, yeah. Yeah. So when you went to uh, Holland, how was that transition? Because I'm assuming when you got to Holland, you coach mostly white kids. Because when you're in South Africa, you coach, you know, black, Indian, and coloreds. Yes. Yeah, in, in Holland, actually, I was going for coaching training, and uh, uh, it was more of a coach education program. Okay. Uh, where I was going for the license. So luckily, uh, in our practicals. Uh, uh, we, you know, we use the coaches instead of bringing the kids from Holland for the practical. So, so uh, one really, you know, worked uh, 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 within the comfort of, of, of senior guys. But the interesting thing is within the South African setting, when I came back then, you know, at Santos, I coached the reserve team initially, which was mostly players of color, you know? Right. And... Uh, yeah, that was quite difficult because, uh, you know, with the racial divide and the history of the country, <laughs> uh, I realized quickly that the first step was to get the players to believe that they can be coached by a black person. Uh, you know, and uh, having worked at Santos, played at Santos, and achieved a lot at Santos helped to a larger degree. But still, you know, uh, players always have to connect with the coach. So... Uh, I think that for me shaped the toughness that 
you know, I had to develop as a coach and uh, stamp my authority at the same time, really from day one, you know, within the first week, right. I could see that if I'm not going to take hold of these kids, then I might as well kiss coaching bye. <laughs> and uh, also, I was coming in with a different approach of football, you know, as you'd know, Santos then was a team known to play long balls, Cape football was known to be the culture of long balls, and here I was coming with build-up play, you know, emphasizing a highly technical game, um, and yeah, that was quite an experience, to be honest, and uh, once the players got the hang of it, they actually enjoyed it, and uh, we went on a very, very solid run, whipping every opposition in front of us, you know. Yeah, no, that's good to hear. Now, how did you coach? What in what language did you coach the players? Like in English, because I know in South Africa you got eleven official languages. How did you deal with different well, languages? Well, I'm lucky. I'm lucky that uh, through football and you know the cultural experiences of football, uh, you learn to speak you know different languages. And I must say that coming from Pretoria and you know playing football in the Cape. The fact that Pretoria was predominantly Africans helped a little bit, you know. Uh, 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 and uh, so settling into Cape Town was very easy, but I had to learn the dialect now, the Africans dialect. Yes. You know, and which through my career and my teammates, you know, uh, uh, I, I learned a lot of the Cape dialect. dialect. For 12 years, I was playing for Santos. So now when going into coaching, and I actually used the, the Cape dialect, to win the players over because then uh, once the players feel that you can speak a language that they're familiar with, you know, then the connection grew stronger. Right. So then you have players from Corsa background and I learned my Corsa in, in Cape Town, I, you know, being a, a Soto and a Pedio from Gauteng. <laughs> then come the Zulu guys who are at school, you know, from the various colleges and universities. So, yeah, I think that kind of helped a lot and I realized quickly that you have to be multilingual but of course then the general rule of operation would be that we'd communicate in English but everyone should be comfortable to communicate in their home language if there was a point they needed to bring across so that uh, uh, then we had you know various guys that could interpret the message so everyone shares the message equally so that was also a way of cultural bonding inside the team so that we really appreciate our differences, but at the same time, you know, we try to build a strong unit. And yeah, that was quite a, 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 a journey way back, eh? actually thinking of it now, it was an exciting moment. Right. So like for, for a modern player, do you feel it is important for them to speak English? Because I know like when players do interviews, uh, they, they normally speak English and then you know, with our South African people, if somebody starts speaking a, a, a different language, they start laughing at the guy saying the guy is not educated. Yeah, look, it's a, it's a, for me, it's neither here nor there, to be honest. Uh, the purpose of communication, you know, and language is a tool for communication, is for the message to be transferred. So, uh, yes, we have many languages uh, in South Africa. Unfortunately, some are suppressed because <laughs> the minority don't know the languages of the majority, unfortunately, and the language of the minority dominates because it's a global language. So, and I think English is somewhat, you know, in our space considered to be an accepted language of communication. Though if you go on the continent and you go into, 
you know, the global space of football, you see how different countries pride themselves in, you know, holding their language firm and preserving it. So I always told my players that uh, if the interview comes, talk in a language that you are comfortable with, you know, it's the duty of the person who's interviewing you to be able to translate the message and hopefully they do the checks and the balances before, or they would indicate to you that, you know, are you comfortable to speak in English or do you wanna speak in your home language? So, so, but generally, yeah, I think it's really unfair. And yes, you're right. You see uh, some players being laughed at, being ridiculed for uh, their lack of proper expression in English. And I just think that uh, it's a little bit unfair because if a guy was to now conduct the interview, which is, you see a lot of these days in uh, Shangan or in Venda, then, you know, millions of people are lost in trying to understand the message. So sometimes it would help if people could appreciate, you know, the effort of someone to try to speak in a language that accommodates everyone as opposed to making a mockery, you know? But yeah, it is what it is, it's football. And uh, I think you, we learned, you know, way back that if you're gonna speak uh, in English or in Africans, you better be sure that, you know, you carry the message across, otherwise then, you know, your message get, get misinterpreted and you might end up swearing at people while you think you are talking good English, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you, you spoke a little bit about coaches like Coach Farouk helping you get into coaching. Now, before you got into coaching, who are some of the people you looked up to uh, or, or coaches you looked up to to, to help you want to be a coach? Um. Yeah, look, I worked with uh, a lot of coaches. Uh, Bobby Solomon is, is one coach that was always in my career because, you know, he's a coach that uh, when I trained Santos in 1993, was the assistant coach, he became the head coach. And we interacted a lot, you know, uh, through my career as a player and as a coach, even today. Uh, and then, you know, I would say, uh, yeah, Mushin Eturgal is also, uh, the one coach that really brought a different dimension of coaching and training methodology to Santos. And uh, uh, it really captivated me and inspired me, you know, because then, uh, you know, coming from Europe and with a German background, he really brought in solid structure into the team, uh, high level tactical application of the game with technical uh, finesse to it. So, and it's also, yeah, still a mentor to me, even today, you know, we talk now and then, and he really inspired me. I would say then, uh, guys like Marcello Lippi, you know, yes. I've always been a Juve, a Milan, you know, Arrigo Sacchi, uh, 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 if I look on the global stage, you know, yeah, I think uh, those kind of coaches, uh, Mario Zagallo, you know, if you watch the, the old Brazilian teams, you really marvel at how they approach football and play football, you know? And uh, yeah, so one of my best mates uh, uh, during my days with school was actually an Italian guy and based in the US, he's a professor now, uh, Professor Peter Leggi. And uh, he is a guy that got me hooked on, you know, the Italian game and he was very passionate and, uh, one just sort of admired how the Italians were solid in defense, 
you know, through the years and uh, uh, how you could bring those elements into our game, you know. And I must say also that uh, guys like uh, my late friend, Thomas Madikhahe, Pizzo Musimane, you know, are some of uh, the growth uh, of Coach Pizzo has always been overwhelming uh, uh, to see from, you know, the days, my days at Supersport when he came in, you yeah. always could see that this guy was going to go places, you know, and uh, we've stayed connected through his career and I'm happy that he fulfilled his coaching dream. What's your take on Coach Pizzo coaching in Egypt? Yeah, look, I think it's great. Um, um, it's something that I think shapes South Africa differently from a coaching perspective. Um, you know, over the last few years, we've been talking about it, you know, in the last five to 10 years, the need for South African coaches to, you know, go on the continent, you know, within the Kwasafa region to try to really improve Kwasafa as a region. Of course, then, you know, on the continent, you always have resistance naturally, you know, uh, the mm -hmm. cultural issues play up, uh, the patriotic issues play up, you know, but I think it's getting a little bit better now. And I think Coach Pito's move really, really, you know, shuts all these barricades that might have been in our minds over decades, you know, uh, because I'm sure even in North Africa, for example, you know, an Egyptian coach would hardly think of coming down to coach in South Africa. So, but with this move of Coach Pito, I think it will really change how we think on the continent around moving around and accepting people from a different culture other than European or South American to come and coach in, on, in our various countries. Nice. Now you are currently the coach for South African under 23. How did you get that job? Yeah, look, uh, uh, I'm a product of SAFA from coach education. Uh, all my licenses have been through SAFA. Yeah, I've just recently, you know, decided to follow the UEFA and to see uh, uh, what, what's happening in terms of their coach education. So I'm currently doing my UEFA B after so many years. I've always said that uh, uh, Africans have to find solutions to African football. And uh, hence, I, I, I stood you know, firm on following uh, our coach education program. So now naturally, you know, through the different levels I've done within SAFA, uh, different classes I've been to, I think uh, the coach educators recognize my talents early on. Uh, and I did my first license in 2004. So then I grew through uh, the SAFA structures and uh, I worked with Coach Sheikhs Mashawa in 2011 after I finished my SAFA level two, which is equivalent to the CAFA of today. And uh, then I worked with Coach Sheikhs uh, Mashawa with the Olympic team to qualify for London. And uh, yeah, my journey then with the national team started then. and. Uh, over the years, one just grew. I worked with Coach Tabo Sinong uh, with the under-20s for the two generations that qualified for the two World Cups. I was his assistant behind the scenes. So, yeah, it's been, you know, nine years of involvement with SAFA. So when the opportunity came for the Olympic team and I was approached and offered the job, I couldn't resist because for me, coaching is about service and saving your country is your 
ultimate you know a, a, a thing that you can do of service to humanity now you spoke a little bit about the uefa license and the calf license now i know there's been talks why would an african coach go and take a uefa license when he's not going to be able to get a job in europe <laughs> yeah that's that's one of the reasons why uh, it's taken me so long uh, to be honest and uh, um, but for me now it's just you know to see uh, you know the european game is totally different to our game and has a huge influence on a global perspective of football you know as you'd know probably from a commercial technical you know physical tactical so i think uh, my curiosity is actually around the coach education within the the european setup you know to say what is their approach how do they go about doing things and uh, i'm also a coach educator locally in south africa you know within the safa coach education I'm working with Safatswane as the regional technical officer at the same time to help you know uh, other upcoming coaches so it becomes important then to have a global view and outlook and uh, be able to reflect in terms of uh, our content of coach education and our training methodologies how do they compare with the rest of the world without losing your 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 own identity i think that is very very important you know Yes. to take what is good and bring it into your space to improve at the end of the day you want to produce players that can compete on the international stage and for me that's the journey i'm embarking on now yes it, to me also another thing it sounds like you have a lot on your plate because uh you are you just say you are a technical director you are a national team coach and you also a coach for sundowns if i'm not mistaken under 23 how do you balance those three jobs yeah look it's for me first about passion and as i said it's about service you know and uh, um so that, therefore you know you have to manage your time very well you have to prioritize uh, and luckily with the national team and the, my activities with the region you know engagements are, are, are sort of fine in between you know uh, it's not like i have regular meetings i must attend to or regular workshops but it's more to support you know the current existing structures and take my international experiences and share them you know at the local level and i'm really really grateful uh, for safa 20 to have given me that platform because when the job of the national team came at some point i wanted to relinquish the position but the leadership felt that no no it was important that you know one stays put and continues to share that knowledge um yeah and then with you know working at mamilori sundowns and with the national team as i'm saying you know sundowns is a top brand uh, your highly talented players come to sundowns yes. at all levels from youth right up to the seniors you know, the professionals so it's always a privilege you know and uh, uh when you come to the national team i think they you know having worked in the national teams and coming to a big club like sundowns working with highly talented players you can connect the experience you know and bring it down to club level and when i go to the national team i take the same experience of every day working in a club 
you know, and dealing with other talented players from other clubs. So, yeah, for me, really, uh, the thing with the national team coaching is that because international games are not being played every weekend, you know, I always felt that, especially at the youth level, you don't want to use the coaching feel, you know, right. uh, the passion, the drive, the, you know, waking up every day and looking forward to your session, whether it be in the morning or, or afternoon, is what drives me. And smelling the grass every day, you know, the fantastic feeling. So, so I was lucky that uh, I came to suffer at a time maybe when also financial issues wouldn't allow me to work full time for Safa. So we managed to find, you know, a balance of, of not leaving my job at Sundowns, uh, but being able to do both uh, and successfully so, so far. Now, is your national team job a part-time job or a full-time job? No, it's a, it's a part-time job. Okay. Now, this is where it gets tricky for me. How do you keep up with the players if it's... It's a part-time job. How do you keep up with the players that you want to select for, for a tournament? Yeah. Yeah, look, uh, we've got a network of uh, scouting people. And uh, at the same time, you know, you stay abreast of the game. When you're a coach, you know, you don't, you know, your job is not just starting or ending when you get onto the practice field at, in the evening and uh, the weekend match. Right. You know, uh, 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 the job of the coach it's really, really uh, extensive. You know, you watch a lot of football uh, because you also want to compare your, your methods to your other colleagues. So I watch a lot of football, which I've been doing over the years. And, uh, you know, being in the same league as the same players as well helps. Communicating with the coaches also helps. For the international players, uh, you know, then you have platforms like instead where you can source you know video footage uh, of the players in various countries you speak to uh, uh, the players themselves in terms of their progress today we live in the age of technology you know you yeah. can watch games now on various platforms through live streaming so uh, technology has really helped uh, um, yeah of course from time to time we'll go visit you know the players and uh, monitor their performances, speak to their clubs, but COVID also came. So that process couldn't take effect. So we use a lot of uh, online, you know, uh, match observation and uh, uh, communicate a lot with the clubs in terms of how the players are doing, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, any issues, whether psychological, fitness, can be dealt with before we really do uh, call a player into the national team setup. Now, when you select the player for the national team, who calls the players? Do you call the players or you have somebody calling the players? No, we have uh, obviously uh, uh, suffer within the management structures. Uh, the the call-up will come from uh, the management structure. What we do at the technical level, you know, I work with fantastic people. Uh, you know, uh, the medical staff, uh, Dr. Mulungwa, physios, Tenseke, you know, lately I brought in Zippo, Langalala. There's also coaches, you know, in, within the PSL that I communicate to on a regular basis. And it helps that I'm also involved in a club in a way because, you know, you get to play against some of these coaches, you know, 
uh, on every weekend. And then you are able to to talk about the players, you know, uh, 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 in terms of, you know, if someone was not in the squad, what are the issues? If someone was in the squad, you can, you know, speak immediately on the spot, you know, so how are they progressing? So uh, I think one is lucky that uh, uh, connection with the rest of the coaches in the various clubs is very good, that I can pick up a phone at any time and engage with them, you know? So uh, then obviously we'll come together. Uh, if there's an international game coming like the previous FIFA week, two, three weeks, we'll start to sit, you know, and do the plenary process in terms of the game before us, you know, the players that are showing form, players that are off form, if there's any injuries to some of our key players, and then we'll put all these uh, little things together. We always have a database of players in our space. And then uh, we'll look at, you know, who is then ideal based on the opposition. So there's a lot of uh, work that goes behind the scenes. You know, uh, we meet at awkward times. Sometimes it's after training in the evening, you know, yeah from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m., 9 p.m., we are sitting somewhere in a restaurant talking football after my work at Sundowns, as, as, as you said. So it's a very, very hectic life that I'm living. And I must be grateful to Mamelodi Sundowns as well for the platform, because sometimes, you know, I would take time off from the club duties to attend to meetings and activities within the national team setup, even during my working hours at Sundowns without any... Uh, 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 compromise to my commitment to sundown. So I think, you know, it's been a well-managed process. Uh, not ideal, of course, I must say, you know, because the best is you want to be sitting in a national office and, uh, you know, zooming into that global space fully 100%, to be honest. Yes. You spoke about bringing in people like Coach Zippo. Like now, do you select your own assistant coaches or Safa provides that for you? Yeah, look, the process is, uh, you, I would recommend and uh, the technical department or SAFA will endorse, you know, my recommendations. And of course, naturally, you know, you get given the latitude to be able to choose people that uh, you feel can contribute to the process, people that can connect and work together well with you as a head coach. And of course, where there are concerns, you know, uh, discussions are being held. But generally, yeah, the process has been good so far, you know. Yes. Now, how closely do you work with uh, the Bafana Bafana team and the Amachita team? We work very, very closely. Uh, right from the under-17 uh, with coach Fela uh, uh, Kumalo, who recently won uh, uh, the Kwasafa under-17 uh, championships to qualify for AFCON. So congratulations to him. Uh, because that's where everything starts, you know, the intake process in terms of the talent uh, pipeline. And then, of course, uh, Coach Elman Kalele at the under-20s, we have regular interactions with Coach Nzeki, you know. So uh, through, you know, selection of various teams, we, we have regular interactions, we discuss various players because, you know, the, the job of a national team coach is very massive and you can't be everywhere and see, you know, all the talented players. So uh, through our interactions, we are able to uh, share ideas, you know, uh, if there's any players that maybe come 
through Coach Nzeki, you know, in terms of recommendations, you know, he'll pass them on to me. Uh, when we sit to discuss uh, uh, the Wafana situation, we sit together. If I saw a player within the PSL ranks that I feel really has been doing very well, you know, we'd always discuss. And uh, of course, at the end of the day, is the head coaches that make the final decisions of who they will take uh, for a particular match, you know. So it's really, really intensive discussions that are happening at different levels at different times. Yeah, it sounds like you guys are doing a lot of work. Now, about the formation, like, do you choose to play your own formation or the the head coach for Bafana Bafana chooses the formation for the teams below to play? Yeah, look, generally, we try to reciprocate what's happening at the top with Bafana Bafana. Uh, and, and that's an issue for South African football. I'm sure you'd be aware, the issue of, you know, playing philosophy, playing style, which formation. So we often say that, uh, remember, the formation is but, you know, the starting outlook of the team. So our di discussion revolves more deeper into the roles, you know, uh, per position, how we want to defend, how we want our midfielders to play, you know, how we want our attackers to operate within different setups, you know. And of course, generally, we've been a country that have been pro 442 or 4411, if you want to look at it that way, or 4231. Yes. But, you know, global football has shifted to 433. Now, the challenge is within the South African space, you, you'll observe that uh, uh, various clubs are, are playing various systems. You know, so for example, now there's an advent of a, a, a three, five, two, three, four, three that has come in, whereas traditionally as South Africans we played with back four. So that becomes a problem for us at national level because you call up a player who plays as a wing back, but then when he comes into the national team, he has to play as a full back. So that presents different challenge in terms of adaptation of the player or adaptation of you as a coach. To a player who comes in as a as a, as a, as a wing back and you want to use him as a full back, you know. Right. But yeah, generally uh, we try to get the lead from the top team, which is Bafana Bafana. Interesting. Now, what is your coaching style? Yeah, for me, you know, um, I look at first the South African context and. Uh, we have players that are highly technical, that are artistic, I would say so, you know. Uh, artistic from a sense of the things they can do with the ball, you know. Uh, the unpredictability with the ball because of how we grow up, you know, especially in the townships, you know. So, and that's been the culture of South African football, you know, and uh, I know other players have so much skill and uh, ball manipulation that uh, uh, it's bordering on showboating because football has changed at the professional level. Uh, but that's the artistic element I'm talking about. So therefore, my game then say, says, appreciate the artistic qualities that the players bring into the game and put in the tactical structure, you know, the discipline of uh, 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 demands of professional football in terms of being effective 
without compromising the player's ability to uh, 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 show their artistic side of themselves through football, you know? Yes. So I like, of course, then, uh, I don't like to see the ball going up in the air because, you know, I believe that when the ball spends more time in the air, then it's any balls, anybody's ball. Whereas football, you know, there's beautiful grasses that are being laid for us so that we can put the ball down and play. So I believe in the ball being put on the ground because it's much more easier to control and uh, the artistic qualities can be showcased when the ball is on the ground. And then, of course, then, you know, you play through the phases of build-up, progression of play to the midfield where the creative elements of your players in the midfield should come through to try to unlock your opponent's defensive structure. And of course, then in the final third, it's about scoring goals and using those artistic qualities, you know, uh, 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 to score goals. So in a nutshell, you know, I hope that answers your question. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very much firm on, uh, because we are enter entertainers as footballers at the end of the day, you know. So it starts with entertainment. And it should end with entertainment, of course, within the professional set setup. Then the entertainment is to see people expressing their talent to achieve winning a match, winning a tournament, or winning a cup, you know, yes. within the tactical structures and uh, uh, formations and functions that we put in place inside the team without compromising the individual, you know. I think. Modern football has focused so much on team play that, you know, we even in South Africa, we're losing the individual qualities, I feel. I mean, we're marveling at Lionel Messi. We're marveling at Cristiano Ronaldo. We're marveling at all these top European guys. But I can tell you, we've got guys within our South African setup that can do the things that you see Messi them doing with ease. But somewhere, somehow, there's a disconnect, in my opinion, about who we are or who we want to be, you know, and who we are. So the influence of perhaps European football or global football has sort of diverted us from who we are, you know, as a nation. Yeah. I know I was having a conversation with one of my boys um, and I was telling him, since I live in the States, how a lot of young American players you know, are now playing for big teams in Europe. You know, you got a guy playing for Barcelona, you got a guy playing for Bayern Munich, uh, there's a guy playing for Juventus. And I was asking him, how come we as South African play, uh, uh, country, we don't have players playing for those teams? Because I know we as South Africans, we have skill, we have everything. But for some reason, we don't have uh, our players playing for top teams in Europe. Mm. Yeah, look, it's an interesting discussion. Um, then the question you got to ask then is, yes, uh, Europe is a very attractive market in terms of, uh, you know, bringing talent over. Now, um, why we don't have, you know, possibly looking at where our game is at youth level, it's no more interesting, you know, for the European market because uh, the game has changed now. You know, the game has gotten faster. Uh, teams are very organized. Uh, so 
those teams, the big teams, are looking for players that are ready when they come in. You know, um, they are looking at players who can come in and bring in something different, but players who have the fundamentals and the basics intact. You know, so also then perhaps for me, uh, then you know, the creative element. You know how much of that is important for you know the teams out there winning has become such a, a very important aspect at the top level that uh, the creative players you know are no more juicy and attractive you know the player that goes out there must be a player who's effective in terms of bringing you know the outcome at the end of the day so i think and for me my opinion is should we talking about taking players to Europe or should we talk, be talking about improving the level of our competition in various countries for that matter and various federations, you know, so that we raise our game to the level that attracts European players to come and play in Africa because, you know, and you're talking your, 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 your cream de la cream coming to play in Africa because the financial resources and financial gains are the same as in Europe and the quality of football also will be up to that same level or up to that same standard. For me, that's something we should be really aspiring towards and dreaming towards. You know, so yeah, I'm starting to shift from the narrative that says players must go to Europe to saying, let's develop our own leagues, make them commercially viable so that our players can develop in their environment, express their you know, cultural tries within football in their own environment and achieve the same global status as Euro European counterparts if we really improve, you know, our football uh, standards uh, overall. Mm. Yeah, I know now uh, in, in South Africa, there's a lot of tournaments going on. And every time I look up on social media, most of these tournaments are, are older players playing in them. The yeah. question becomes, how come we don't have tournaments for like the young kids, for the under 12s, the under 15s happening? Yeah, look, I think we have a, a lot of work to do in terms of uh, structuring our football, to be honest. And as I'm saying, uh, from a competitions framework, there's a lot of work. There's too much loose things that are happening within our football, you know, and uh, I think the regulatory aspect of our football needs to be managed better uh, so that David shouldn't wake up one day and decide, you know, to do a, a six-team tournament and then he invites teams without applying anywhere. He just gets a sponsor, he puts in 150,000 there, people come and play and then uh, that's it. Can't be, you know, uh, these things needs to be regulated. So unfortunately, the history that we come from has created this kind of scenario. And uh, people feel that they own the game. So it becomes difficult to regulate the game because people don't see the need to go apply to suffer, whether at regional level or to an LFA, to say we want to do a tournament, you know, uh, give us authority, give us permission. People just do things free, you know, freely uh, uh, and and that has a negative impact on football because when a player goes to play in a tournament, like you say now during this period, and you know, 
on a day he can walk home with 1,500 rent in the pocket after winning the tournament. What would motivate that player to go join an LFA club that is structured, that is proper developmental process of, you know, football? Because, you know, there's no immediate gains there. The gains are long-term. And we are living in a country where people want quick solutions to social problems, economic problems that uh, we are facing due to poverty. So, yeah, that's a difficult environment and a difficult space. Yeah. How important is coaching education to you, to the young coaches that are coming up? Yeah, look, coaching education is very, very important. Uh, you know, I was recently uh, through COVID doing a lot of engagement with uh, coaches within our LFA structures. And uh, I found that uh, a lot of them, you know, are not investing into their own personal development in coaching. So one of the questions I asked them and I referenced was to say, uh, both of us are parents. So I wouldn't take my kid to a school where the teachers are unqualified, isn't it? I mean, if, if, if my, my, my kid was in a school where I find that the teacher has got uh, uh, unscrupulous qualifications, I would leave my job space quickly and run to that school to, you know, create chaos because I wouldn't be happy that the teacher that is teaching my kid actually is underqualified. But for football in our country, it seems normal, you know, that uh, anyone can just put on, you know, boots, tracksuit, t-shirt, and stand on the sideline and bark instructions at the kids and assume the role of a coach without any form of qualification. And I think that's one of the dangers that we are facing in our football because education, teaching has methodology and coaching is teaching, by the way. Now, the teachers know the method of teaching the kids in various subjects. Now in football, it bugs then a question. Then the guy who's unqualified, what methodology then is he using to impart football skills to this particular kid? Hence, maybe the question you asked, you know, why don't we have kids going to Europe? And that's where the problems start to happen because right at the bottom level, we don't have really strong uh, coaches, well-educated coaches, coaches who understand methodology of teaching and imparting knowledge to these kids, you know, and that becomes a problem. Right. And I agree with, with the teaching part of things, because I know like here in the U.S., especially in the, in the grassroots soccer, you have to have some type of license before you could coach anything. And if you do not have a license, you cannot coach the team. And of course, a lot of parents are involved with their kids in America, where they know who's coaching the kid, what qualification he has. Now, the reason I'm bringing up the parents is because even myself growing up, my parents never see me play. Do you think it's important for South African parents to support their kids? Very, very important, you know, and sadly, you know, yeah, maybe through the history of our country, uh, our parents were busy, you know, occupied with other challenges of life to make sure that uh, we can continue to play our football, 
you know, we have our necessary provisions for the house. But I think the modern day parent has an opportunity to can go support the kids. And there's a lot of parents that are really making an effort to support their kids. But I think uh, it should be a cultural shift toward that so that parents show more interest in their kids. I mean, if you go to a lot of academies and you check in terms of the involvement of parents, you'd find that the percentages are still very, very low uh, for the kind of an era that we are living in. So that is so, so, so important. And uh, uh, also, you know, to go watch the kids, motivate the kids, because I always say to parents, it's a shared journey and it's a shared responsibility between the coach and the parent, because we both want one common thing to see these young kids succeed in life, you know, and not only in football. Right. No, that's interesting. Now, I know the, Olymp the Olympics were supposed to happen in 2020 and they did not happen. How did you feel after hearing that it's not, they're not going to happen? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was a tough one, I must say. Yeah? You know, because uh, we're all driven by our dreams in life and things that we want to achieve. You know, so Olympics being postponed felt like... Uh, uh, you know, when your dream is about to become a reality, yes. You know, it felt like your dream is being shifted away from you or taken away from you. And uh, uh, for a moment, I thought, you know, yeah, we all we all are looking forward in life to that one major break that could be life changing. And uh, and uh, I was close to it. You know, going when I started coaching. One of the things that also drove me in coaching was the fact that I never had an opportunity as a player to represent my country. So I really wanted to represent my country as a coach. And I've done that, you know, uh, through my involvement with the national teams. But now going to any major tournament is your ultimate dream, you know, in realizing uh, the goal of representing your country. So. Yeah, we, we're still waiting and seeing whether the Olympics will happen or not. But yeah, it was a hair-raising moment, you know, mixed with emotion of uh, disappointment, but also, you know, having to keep the anticipation because the tournament was postponed and not cancelled. Right. Now, I'm going to shift gears a little bit here. Now, how closely do you the national team work with uh, the women's team, Banyana Banyana. Is there any connection there or they do their thing, you do your thing as a national team? No, no, as coaches, we do interact, you know, uh, various uh, women's football coaches. Uh, coach Desiree, we speak a lot uh, with Coach Nzeki and the other coaches, you know, uh, luckily. So, Actually, interestingly, Coach Desiree wanted uh, me to join them when they went to the World Cup, you know, as part of the technical advisory staff. But unfortunately, uh, we had, you know, our business to take care of uh, at Kosafa. So, yeah, we work very closely. Uh, we share ideas because football is football, you know, although uh, the intensities of the competition might be different, but the demands are still the same. Right. Now... 
the women's soccer in South Africa, do you think it's growing or it's not? Yeah, look, I'm happy that uh, it's taking off nicely. Today, as we are talking, there's a professional league. And uh, it's so funny because I joked about three, four years back with Coach Desiree that I think we've got a better chance of winning uh, the World Cup with women than with men. So, <laughs> <laughs> And our women went to the World Cup, you know. So, But yeah, that space is also getting really, really competitive, you know. But I'm happy that uh, uh, women's football has taken off and it's getting stronger and stronger. Uh, and it's recognized more than anything else. And yes. Uh, uh, yes, there's still issues of, you know, equality in terms of resources, opportunities and all that, you know. Uh, uh, but that will come right in time. Back to your point about saying the women are going to win the World Cup before the men. And looking at it, a lot of female players are getting opportunities to play overseas, which is a good thing for, for the country and, and the national team. Yeah, look, uh, for me, my opinion is that uh, if you look at uh, the role of apartheid within our football setup, it means that the other countries are 50 years plus ahead of us, you know, in terms of their football development. So to catch up on a gap of 50 years plus and we don't have the resources, the infrastructure, you know, the capacity sometimes, it's too much to ask, uh, to be honest. So with women's football, we're probably, you know, five to 10 years behind, in my opinion. Mm. You know, so which gap is easier to close? I mean, for me, it's logic, <laughs> you know? So, so hence, hence, for me, I've always said, and Coach Desiree will tell you, I've always said, we probably stand, you know, a better chance because we're also starting afresh, right. you know, so we can really set up solid structures from the wet goal, whereas uh, the male's football side has been influenced also by the past and then there's apartheid that was, you know, giving in the black communities dusty grounds while in the white communities there was grass fields. So whereas with women's football, you can choose to put grass fields across board, you know, you can choose to build stadiums or training facilities with proper change rooms. But yeah, it's a choice we must make and it's an investment that must come into uh, women's football and sport generally to achieve equality. What would you say to the up and coming coaches who want to be like you? What advice would you give them? Yeah, it's been a long journey. I I, I would say first, uh, um, you know, you got to have the passion for the game. And you've got to direct your passion, you know, uh, as a coach and, 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 you know, have a determination of what is it that you want to achieve uh, in the process. And then, you know, work your steps towards achieving that, you know. And I think, look, yeah, there, there, there are two critical elements that you see in the modern day. You will either get a coach that's going to save the game and focus on, you know, improvement and development of players, uh, change players' lives, you know, and, and, and with that achieve, you know, their own personal success. And then you'd have a coach that would be driven by 
they need to make money, the commercial aspect of coaching. So mm. I think a lot of young coaches come into coaching because they would see that, uh, okay, Pizzo Musimani is earning one million at Sundowns. Uh, uh, Roger Desa is earning 350,000 a month. No, I wanna go into coaching, that's good money. <laughs> so, so for me, that is so, so, so important because uh, the reality is if you come with that perception and driven by the desire to want to get there because of the money, the danger is the steps towards getting there, you might not, you know, climb all of them to get there. And along the way, uh, you can easily get exposed to the challenges that face football, you know. Uh, uh, yeah, buying of games, selling of game, you know, buying of players, selling of players, money put into your pocket because people want to promote their players. So I think that's that that's the biggest. A, a, a danger that is facing football. So for me, for any upcoming young coach, I would say to them, really navigate your pathway towards the dream you want to realize in coaching. And the ultimate about coaching, for me, it's really about service. It's about changing and shaping lives and making sure that we produce all around human beings uh, for society out of football because sport is a lifelong experience you know, beyond professional uh, 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 playing of sport, there's also post-professional uh, aspects of sport that our players need to be educated about and who must do that, it's the coaches, you know. So it's about service more than anything else for me. But yeah, uh, education is very important. Of course, if you want to become a coach, uh, personality is also very important. You've got to ask yourself some tough questions. You know, do I have the characteristics? Uh, do I have the personality that, uh, that goes with coaching? And what aspects of my personality do I need to shape to become the coach that I think I want to become, you know? Uh, so, yeah, it's quite a process and an in, a very, very tricky process. Also, that is about... I'm talking now about uh, human development, capacity development, empowering yourself, shaping yourself, and deciding who do you want to become. You know, everyone wants to become Pep Guardiola today. Yes. Everyone thinks they they want to become Mourinho, they want to become Bielsa, Pochettino, and all those guys. But I say, I always want to remain who I am as David. Yes, I can steal there and there and uh, follow certain tries from these global coaches. But uh, for me, I, I think it's very important to remain who you are as a coach and shape your personality and mold your personality around uh, what you see in front of you instead of trying to copy other people that is in front of you because that also has its own you know, side effects. Mr. David Notuani, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, this was a life lesson for me, just hearing your story. Uh, thank you for your time. Thanks very much, Boise. Thanks for the opportunity to uh, share my life story. And I hope uh, the listeners will enjoy it. Uh, let's continue growing uh, our football in South Africa and keep up the good work, mate. Uh, sure, we shall talk again sooner. All right. Thank you, sir. Thanks. Bye.
Thanks for listening to Telling Our Football Stories and thanks to Coach David Nodone for sharing his story with us. Have a great day.